How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. There's a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I had to go into the office to do a bunch of stuff. I had uh, a busy day for the wrestling side of things. Then I had my lunch was leftover nachos. That, um, <laughs> leftover nachos are not a nachos no it's are not the, good no that's like the worst food to have left over <laughs> it's not it was not going to be good and I, that's you what either I had, eat them uh, cold or you heat them up and they're soggy yeah i was gonna i heated them up is what i did and uh i had them and i took them out of the microwave and hit the edge of the tupperware on the side of the microwave somehow and they just flipped out and fell all over the floor <laughs> <laughs> and so and then all over my and I, I was still in my bedroom shoes for that part so then they got all over my bedroom shoes and then the dogs were trying to lick my feet and then anyway that was my lunch that was what i was gonna eat for lunch so i haven't <laughs> even had that today wow so so you haven't eaten today so you're you're working we're you're podcasting on an empty stomach yeah i i snacked on some <laughs> It's not going to sound any better. I snacked on some nuts on the way up here. Wow. Okay. Not touching that one. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Anyway, we're recording. All right. Let's go. Well, hello and welcome to Cinem... No. Hold on. Justin. Justin has fooled me in the notes. (laughs) I pulled a Ron Ron Burgundy on you. (laughs) Welcome to Christmas Shock. I feel like I just said Chris Christmas different than I've ever said it before. I actually you really like... acts you really accentuated the T in there. Yeah, that's weird. Like you wanted everyone to know that you can't spell Christmas without Christ. Right. I don't. Doing. I don't do the fucking Xmas bullshit. <laughs> no, I'm not doing the war on Christmas this year. Welcome to Christmas Shock. This is the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult genre, Christmas films. We do all the research so that you don't have to. We're the guys telling you everything you need to know about your favorite Christmas movies and the people who made them. So that the next time you're caught up in a nerdy Christmas movie conversation, not only will you know what is going on, you might actually be the expert. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horn. I should have written it to say, well... Ho ho ho! Instead of well, hello in there to see if Damn. you do that. Yeah, that we missed, missed that opportunity. I just thought of it though. Uh, I'm your co-host Justin Bishop, and if you have not figured it out by now, yes, this is our Christmas special, the Cinema Shot Christmas special, the CSCS. How about that? Just thought about that. But we've never done this before, really, a Christmas special. I mean, the last time we talked about any Christmas movies at all, I think was way back when we did our four-part series on Shane Black, because, you know, all the Shane Black movies are Christmas movies, but that was in, like, Christmas of 2020, like, within the first six months of the Cinema Shock podcast, right? Uh, That was in our first year, so, yeah, that was way, way back then. So it's been a while since we've done any Christmas movies, but, you know, we've kind of evolved our the show since then, and this sort of usual multi-episode series format that we normally work with doesn't really lend itself to doing a lot of special holiday episodes because come Christmas, you might be smack dab in the middle of 
some director's career. You can't just like throw a Christmas movie in there. Or I guess you could. It's our podcast. We can do whatever the hell we want. But we've never done that. Uh, but bad we're, we're we're not a video podcast yet because yeah. uh, we went all out. Like I've got Christmas lights behind me. You can't see them at a Christmas tree behind me. But I can and see them. And we're so. in claymation. Yeah, we are. We are animated by Rankin and Bass this week. Yeah. I, I wish that we had video so that people could see all the care that went into that. <laughs> so anyway, we figured that since, you know, we're, we're taking these few weeks uh, while Todd's away, we're kind of shooting from the hip and just kind of doing some random stuff that's kind of a little out of the norm for what we normally do. We figured, why not squeeze in an episode about a Christmas movie or, you know, what the hell? Why not squeeze in an episode about two Christmas movies? So this week on the podcast, we're going to focus on one of the more uh, the more controversial movies, believe it or not, that we've ever discussed on the show. Uh, one that inexplicably was so heavily protested upon its original release that it was pulled from theaters. And then, even more inexplicably, still proved to be successful enough to spawn not one, not two, but four sequels and a remake. Now, we're not going to have time to talk about all of those on this episode today, not not to really dive deep dive into all of those, but we are going to tackle the first two films in the series. Uh, we're doing a Christmas special in the only way that Cinema Shock could, by talking about a cult and genre film, of course. We're starting with the one that started it all, Silent Night, Deadly Night. It was the night before Christmas when all through the house not a creature was stirring not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. You've made it through Halloween. Now try and survive Christmas. Silent Night, Deadly Night. So Silent Night, Deadly Night, the, the story behind this film began, uh, where else, of course, but Harvard University. <laughs> At Harvard University, there's this guy who was an undergraduate, his name's Paul Kamey, and he wrote a screenplay called He Sees You When You're Sleeping, which is very a very creepy phrase when you think about it in, in this context. But the this screenplay portrayed a killer dressed as Santa Claus and the story eventually made its way to the desk of a movie producer named Scott Schneid, uh, who himself was a Harvard graduate who was now working for the William Morris Agency and kind of had, he kind of wanted to break into producing films. Now, Schneid wasn't a fan of slasher movies, but he saw the commercial potential of the story. Uh, this was, after all, the early 1980s, and slasher movies were dominating the horror landscape. I think that short story thing comes from a 94 interview with Fangoria and Charles Sellier said in that that this film was based off a book called Sleigh Ride by Paul Kamey. That's not a book. That's not a real book. So he just he just be making shit up. Well, by 1994, uh, Charles Sellier had to be very old because he was pretty yeah. old when he made this, I think. So Schneider, he says that he was actually an agent trainee 
at William Warren agency. He wanted to become a Hollywood agent and he realized pretty early on that that's not all it's cracked up to be. That was just something he was pursuing at the time. This is him on the commentary talking about it. He just said that it was like 12 hour days. It was just too rough. Yada, yada, yada. I mean, imagine, I guess, Tom Cruise calling you to bitch you out whenever he feels like it and he wants right. you to do something or Stevie <laughs> Wonder or whatever. Because 3 a.m., 3 p.m., it don't matter to Stevie Wonder. It's, it's all the same to him. <laughs> uh, anyway, 24-7, you belong to these people. He decided he wanted to become a producer. He was like, I'm going to look for something to produce. So he said that he would get offers a lot of times because his number was part of this. He being a Harvard alumni, he, his number was given out to some of the students there as part of this like alumni career advising kind of thing. Uh -huh. And so... Paul Kamey called him one day during like perfect timing, like while he's trying to think of something to produce and he gets this phone call and he was like, this is just this kid hustling. And he said, yeah, send it on over. And he sent him the script and he thought it sounded awesome, especially in this era, like you said, with the horror booms kicking in every, he was saying like, you know, every holiday had already been hit. Like mother's day had even been hit. He said, so here's this killer Santa. And according to him, like he, he didn't even realize about like Christmas evil or something like that. We'll talk about, but like he, he just said, this seems super new and fresh. And he just like pictured blood on the snow and, the inverting of the idea of Santa and he couldn't believe this had been done yet. And he's like, perfect. This is what I want to work on. Yeah. And you you mentioned that Charles Sellier uh, said it was a book. I, I, I saw one other place where it said it was a short story, but when you watch all of the like interviews with people involved in this, they all refer to it as just a screenplay. So who knows? I mean, it was 40 years ago at this point. Uh, people's memories, as we've, we've said multiple times on this show, can get a little hazy over the decades. But regardless, the, Paul Camey wrote something called <laughs> He Sees You When You're Sleeping that made its way to, to Scott Schneid or Schneed. Schneed? Schneid? I don't know. Sorry, Scott, if you're listening. But uh, <laughs> Schneid, he optioned Kami's script or story or whatever it was. But he really only used the general concept of a killer Santa. Like, he liked that concept, like you were saying, you know. But he didn't really like the rest of the script. He, he just kind of, kind of thought the rest of it was unusable and had no interest at all in using anything other than that concept of a killer Santa. So he threw out pretty much everything else. Which is why in the final product, if you look at the opening credits, uh, Paul Kami is credited with a story credit, but not a screenwriting credit. So instead, Schneid and his uh, producing partner, Dennis Whitehead, they hired a writer named Michael Hickey to write a completely original treatment. They basically just told him, hey, we, we came across this idea to feature a killer in a slasher movie that dresses up like Santa Claus and we want you to write it. So he he started from scratch, didn't go by the story that Paul Kamey had written at all, just write a completely original treatment, which they called Sleigh Ride. Now that is spelled, of course, S-L-A-Y, Sleigh Ride, all one word. Yeah, that's perfect. That's a great name. Schneid or Schneid. Kami was a college kid. It was That was the main issue yeah. with uh, Schneid. He said, he said Hickey got brought in to help with the story treatment. Believe in the commentary, he said he brought Kami in to help Hickey with the story treatment. Like they let him work on that part of it. It was like 32 pages. But, you know, like you said, it was the killer Santa thing that was the germ of the idea. That was the main thing that everybody wanted. Uh, but he, he said basically not a knock on Kami, but it was just unprofessional. It was not something you'd roll into movie making with. It just wasn't well put together or anything like that. That was the main It was issue. probably like a first attempt at a screenplay, you know? Yeah, yeah. So essentially he said the OG script, like the basic story was Santa terrorizes a small town. He said it was like Halloween with Santa right. Claus. Basically, yeah. he said there's a girl that he is 
tracking at the end who ends up killing him and saving the whole town and they wanted to try something else and see what they could do right so what they did in in coming up with this and constructing this story they wanted to take a kind of unique approach to a slasher movie one that was unlike all the other slasher movies that were being released every week in the early 80s you know they wanted to examine the series of events that led to the killer's rampage rather than focusing on following the victims like most of these horror movies did yeah he said that their idea was like okay we know where we want to get to but let's work backwards this there there are a lot of killers now we want to see all the dominoes that have to fall to get the person to that spot, basically. Just get into his psyche. Maybe it's the, even build It's the Rob movie. Zombie Halloween approach. I literally <laughs> was thinking of that this evening. I was like, this is what Rob Zombie did. I never realized it, but this is basically... This, this kid was not... Uh, as much of a whitey bitch, though. Uh, <laughs> That's true. That is true. <laughs> as Michael Myers. <laughs> so the deal was, Dennis Whitehead, I guess, happened to know a producer named Ira Barmark. And he talked to him and he gave him the script. Ira had actually just worked out a deal with TriStar. And he was pretty receptive to this because he said that TriStar, had, he had actually overheard, they were pretty interested in having a horror franchise right now. Universal had Halloween, Paramount had Friday the 13th. So there was money in this kind of concept and they were looking for something. This might be just the thing. And so apparently he bundled it with, uh, they said, a uh, script for like a uh, the comedian Danny Kay, like a vehicle for him or something. Oh, wow. like, okay. <laughs> he put them together and presented them both to TriStar, see which one they bid on. And as he thought they might, they ended up landing on Silent Night, Deadly Night. What if they had combined those two ideas and Danny Kaye had played the killer Santa Claus? (laughs) (laughs) That would have been, I mean, by the time you get to part five in this franchise, I mean, who the fuck knows? (laughs) (laughs) And TriStar, we we should mention, was pretty new at this time. TriStar, you've seen TriStar's name on a thousand movies at this point, but at this time in like 1982, three or so whenever this was 84 tristar is like a kind of a brand new production company or studio so them wanting to break into horror movies but they were kind of seeing this as a way to an inexpensive way to make a couple of easy hits right so uh, according to schneid and whitehead once ownership to sleigh ride once the ownership rights were signed over to ira barmack they were kind of completely left in the dust with no creative input on the film at all. He, uh, Bar- Ira Barback just kind of took a hold of it and took over the whole project. Uh, you see, they had wanted to hire a young up-and-coming director for the film, someone who, in their words, could be the next John Carpenter. Their short list of directors included Ken Quapis, Albert Magnoli, and Sam Raimi. Uh, unfortunately, though, with them being kind of frozen out of the, the production moving forward, none of these directors were even considered for what it's worth Schneid says that 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 whole thing was kind of bittersweet he said he was like a bartender at the time and Dennis Whitehead I think was he said selling shirts in the men's department somewhere and uh he said that that their basic thing they got out of this was their very first uh Hollywood screwed me over story (laughs) (laughs) but so they weren't stoked about that part but he said bittersweet because at the same time you're also like super excited because the baby you just helped put it put out there is gonna be a movie now right yeah yeah but but you know they did want to be more involved than than what would end up happening so tristar as i mentioned was a fairly new studio and this was their to be their first foray into low budget horror filmmaking and they they kind of naturally started to get a little bit nervous about it because they were 
you know, a little bit out of their element. So the studio president, Jim Sagansky, he convinced a friend of his, a veteran filmmaker by the name of Charles E. Sellier Jr., to come on board as the film's director. Now, Schneid and Whitehead, they thought that was a weird choice. They didn't think that Sellier's past output really indicated that he should be directing a horror movie, but Trisar insisted, eventually hiring him to helm the film. Now, Sellier was not a horror director at all. Had no experience in horror, but he had a lot of experience in film and television in general, having created the popular TV series, The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams, which which itself was based on a movie that he had directed that was popular enough to spawn two seasons of a TV show. So Sagansky, he felt that bringing in someone with Cellier's experience would help them to kind of be sure that they weren't getting in over their heads. This is a guy who knew how to run a movie set. And Cellier, who was... It should be noted, not just inexperienced in horror films, but not a fan of horror films. He didn't like them. He didn't like horror films, but he agreed to direct the movie as a favor to his friend Jeff or Jim. Jeff or Jim? I wrote it two different ways. Shit. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully he's not listening. Uh, uh, His friend uh, Sagansky, we'll just go by the last name, uh, who had given him a lot of work in the past. Brother had never even seen a slasher. Didn't even know anything about that Charles Sellier had not yeah yeah Sellier had not even ever seen a slasher hadn't seen Halloween hadn't seen Friday the 13th no that's well you don't know anything about it so I mean I guess that's why some interesting choices it can get made here yeah it definitely doesn't well I mean I guess we'll talk about this later but it doesn't fall into a lot of the tropes of a what you would consider a slasher movie Perry uh Botkin uh, I don't know how much we'll talk about him more you know he's the composer on this movie he'd never Mm -hmm. scored a horror movie, I don't think. Uh, really, yeah. Before this, that guy, he wrote the the theme song for Young and the Restless. So, oh shit that 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 theme song was seared into my brain as a child because that was one of my mom's soaps. Uh, that yeah. one and the Bold and the Beautiful those those were her stories every day. Yeah, I mean he that paid for everything. They were saying uh, Sneed was saying that that guy he had still hung out with him. I guess right before the commentary, he said like the week before he had hung out with Perry Botkin at his house, and he said the Grammy that he got for the Young and Restless theme is sitting on the back of his toilet, literally (laughs) just hanging out there. I love it. A random fun fact about that score just sits. This is the weirdest place to put this, but since I'm already talking about him now, is yeah, that what I love is he had all the the original score, and then they had written like uh, actual mute like songs for the movie. Like there's there's songs you can hear in the movie, like I know with the Linnea Quigley and stuff that they the pool table scene. There's a song playing in the background. It's a Christmas song, but it's like one they wrote for this movie. Huh. They were originally going to put all that out together, like the score and like an actual Christmas album with this, but uh, then it got canceled because of stuff we'll talk about in a little bit. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so filming for the movie took place in the winter of 1983 in Utah, primarily in Salt Lake City and Haber City, and the majority of the cast were uh, just local actors from the surrounding areas. The reason uh, it's in Utah, by the way, just because this relates to a lot of stuff that we've been taught, it feels like we've talked about recently, is uh, Utah is a uh, right-to-work state, and so they did not have to worry about the unions. Ah, like like on a lot of those uh, John Waters movies. That's what you're talking about that we, yeah, that we talked yeah. about recently. Uh, so it's a non-union movie. That makes that that tracks. Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the lead role of Billy was awarded to a guy named Robert Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. Son of a bitch! I had made a note to make that joke. 
<laughs> Did you really? <laughs> As if I wouldn't just think of it from hearing that name. Okay. <laughs> uh, he was a uh, Robert Brian Wilson was a Salt Lake City local who, who had no prior acting experience and only auditioned for the role because his girlfriend asked him to. Yeah, he said that he was literally on vacation, like having dinner with his girlfriend, and he was approached by a studio exec. And I mean, this is like the dream scenario that people have probably with their actors or something. Yeah, like, yeah. They just like would go to Hollywood and somebody's just going to see you on the street and be like, you're fit for the pictures, kid. But it, but it happened to him in like bumfuck Utah. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> he said that he he was having dinner and this guy walks over and said, you know, I, I work for this studio or whatever. Have you ever been an actor? Are you thinking about acting? Yada, yada, yada. And he's like, no, that's not really my thing. And uh, he's like, well, you look like you should be an actor. And he's like, and I've watched your interactions. I watched the way you interacted with your girlfriend, the wait staff. And he's like, it was kind of creepy, honestly. And the guy's like, <laughs> I was like, I've been watching. You gotta, you gotta come in and see me, whatever. And so he goes and sees this guy, and uh, I, I guess he's like an agent or something. But he said he wasn't gonna go. But that's the part. Like his girlfriend was like, "No, you gotta go. You gotta go see what this is about." And so I guess that the, this is what. What are these guys? I, he did not name a name, but anyway, he says that they brought him in a room or like read part of the script, and they so he's like reading, and they're like, "Okay, you can read, but like let's." let's try acting like let's let's see and he's like well i don't he's like i don't really act and he's like well just react how you naturally react he says so it gets to a part where like the agent guy is supposed to push him and so he pushes him and he said he just let rage take over and he grabbed the guy by the shirt and slammed him against the wall <laughs> and it's like okay okay all right we're good we're good and he's like but that's it that's what we want and he yeah. said it was kind of how it happened he said they were just like you're the guy within like a few days they he had made him a fake resume and a portfolio with like all these acting credits that <laughs> were not real and his niece the guy's the agent's niece like was a photographer and took all these headshots of him and stuff and they put it all together to pitch him for the role and he he got it well i mean luckily his role doesn't involve him talking very much except to just say like punish i mean he's got a little bit of dialogue in the the early scenes of him and like the working in the toy store i guess but even then he's like portrayed as a very like quiet soft-spoken person so there's not even a ton of emoting evolved he said he said when he was doing, like, he, he did have to go into, like, casting or whatever. And he said he asked the girl there, like, what, what should I do? Do you have any suggestions? And she was like, I don't know. Just be yourself. Everybody's tried to be really menacing and evil looking. Just maybe try something different than that. Just yeah. try to be who you are. <laughs> and yeah. So he said that's what he did. He was just trying to be, like, calm and, like, a little nice, like a thing. nice guy. Yeah. Yeah. Which fits the character. I mean, at least what the character is supposed to be in those early scenes. But most of the other actors in the film, the, the ones who did have experience, were mostly, you know, your working character actor types. Most of them spent big chunks of their career in small roles or, or on television, you know, popping up in an episode of this show or that show here and there. Uh, you had Gilmer McCormick, who she plays Sister Margaret. Uh, Brett Leach plays this toy store manager, Mr. Sims. Love that guy. Uh, Nancy Borgenick. Am I saying that right? I don't know. But she plays Mrs. Helen Randall. Uh, Morgan Nick, by the way, has a little bit of horror movie cred. A uh, little fun fact for you here. She has a very small role. I think it's credited as like lady in grocery store or something in Halloween 4. Well, she is she is not the only person in this movie that's from a Halloween movie, which is going to be fun. There are some yeah. connections. 
But I will say the I mean the first one I can think of right off the top of my head is the little girls uh who has the dad in the Santa suit that busted that the cops like busted on. Yeah, yeah. That's, he's uncredited, but that's Don Shanks. Yeah, he was actually a Grizzly Adams, so that's probably how that happened. I yeah, think. yeah. Anyway, he's Michael Myers in Halloween five. Halloween five, the worst of the Halloween movies. Uh <laughs> That's my my hot take for today. Uh, but he also plays the killer in I'll Always Know What You Did Last Summer. So he's done a couple of couple of horror movies here and there. Then you've got Will Hare, who uh, Will Hare has one scene as Billy's grandfather, uh, a, a memorable scene. But he was a veteran actor as well. I mean, m- most everyone listening has probably seen him in Back to the Future. He plays the gun-toting farmer, old man Peabody in that one. Chases oh, nice. Marty, you know? He, that's kind of his thing in movies. He just plays crusty old men, mostly. <laughs> uh, like, if you look at his his filmography, that was kind of his thing. But that guy acted, I mean, he acted until the day he died. Like, literally, he he died during a rehearsal <laughs> on <God>. stage. <laughs> so, he died doing what he loved, I guess. But the most experienced cast member was probably Lillian Chauvin uh, as Mother Superior the kind of the one of the villains of the movie, I guess you'd say. Uh, Chauvin's career dated back to the 1950s. She's appeared in everything from uh, the Elvis movie, King Creole, to Predator 2. Uh, she's in Universal Soldier. She's in Catch Me If You Can. Uh, she also has a long list of credits on television, including as a series regular on Days of Our Lives, on Mission Impossible, on General Hospital, uh, plus guest starring roles on tons of other well-known shows, including, uh, I'm sure Todd would like you to know, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Robert Brian Wilson's, he has a couple of people he talks very highly of from this movie, and she is one of them. Because I guess when he got there, filming had already started, because they were trying to get the snow and all that stuff, or like a lot of this stuff. And um, so he flew in with like Ira and got there, and he didn't know much about anything was not a trained actor he said but Lillian was the first person that walked up to him and was like do you want to go over our stuff together run through lines and all that and he was like yeah that would that would be awesome and so she went through all that and he was telling her a little bit about himself and said that she was really cool like she was uh saying he, back in Hollywood I'm a acting coach so that's like what I do on the side so if you want to go through the whole script like I can run through everything with you and we can just do stuff and so he was like cool so they did that he also says that afterwards he was like you should come by and see me sometime like uh we'll practice or whatever and he said he, he eventually did do that but he thought that like, she was just being friendly and she was like no it's like 35 dollars an hour like you're gonna <laughs> if you're gonna come to my class it wasn't just a friendly visit it was a uh a business transaction at that point right right <laughs> she she teased him of the movie and then was just like <laughs> now now you're a client uh and of course it, while we're talking about the cast we we have to mention that we also have among our cast horror royalty Linnea Quigley she appears in a very small but um it's a very memorable role as one of Billy's victims. You you remember this scene, right, Gary? She meets a grizzly end being impaled on a set of deer antlers. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't know how you can forget the scene. <laughs> and, uh, no, I mean Linnea, Linnea uh, was you know she was just showcasing all of her talents in this particular very, role. And that yeah. and that like ten minutes, she she showed you exactly why. She's one of the best to do it. (laughs) (laughs) It is a great scene, though. It's a it's a it's a really good kill scene. Uh, But yeah, this I mean, I guess she had already done a few horror things. This wasn't like one of her first horror roles, was it? I mean, she hadn't done like Mm -mm. Return of the Living Dead or anything like that yet, but. No, because when we talk about some of the stuff that that's going to happen in the release of this movie, I mean, she talks about being in Mexico filming when all this starts going down and her agent calls her and tells her about it. She's like, what is the problem? 
it's a fucking horror movie. Yeah, like, right. you know, she like, she she was just like very confused about everything. Like, why does anyone care? Yeah, who cares? She was like, I just thought it was like another day at the office. Right. Like, I mean, it was for her. Yeah, her boyfriend, by the way, in that scene is uh, Leo Getter, who also plays Barry Sibbs, the dickhead radio DJ in Halloween Five. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. So you know, another you Halloween remember- connection. Yeah, if you if you've seen Halloween Five, he's like the main memorable character besides, of course, Danielle Harris. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but she, you know, he's this had to be. This was around that time, though, right? Halloween Five would have come out in the mid '80s, like '85, '86, probably I, right, right after this. Yeah, I think is it Halloween Five, like '89 or something? Was it that? Like was it that, that much later? Okay, so it was. A few yeah, years after I, th- this. I think it's it's after. And I'll tell you this because I looked this up because it was because they say that. The reason that the mall Santa was getting replaced is because he, the original broke his ankle ice skating. Yeah. And that is the same excuse why Rachel has to babysit Jamie at Halloween four. Oh, really? <laughs> because the other babysitter <laughs> broke her ankle ice skating. And I was like, is this, is it a reference? Is, is, is ha- reference? Was Halloween four referencing this movie? <laughs> yeah, it was just real weird. Wow. I was like, why, why is that? I've always remembered that. Anyway, I'll fit with that. Barry Sibs. Look up Barry Sibs. Just look up clips of Barry Sibs. He's, yeah. he's a lot of fun. Do you have a point to make, Justin, or should I continue spanking the monkey? <laughs> <laughs> wank, wank. Thanks for your time, Justin. <laughs> so what other person, while we're talking about the cast and crew here, that we have to mention is a guy named Michael Spence. Uh, Spence is credited as the film's editor and the film's second unit director. But the truth is that he was, you know, by all accounts, practically the co-director of the movie. Uh, Spence was involved in location scouting, arranging shot lists, and even some casting decisions. Uh, In addition to the usual stuff that a second unit director would be responsible for, you know, insert shots, uh, action shots, things like that. Spence also directed full scenes that Cellier didn't have time to get around to. Uh, Thanks probably to the tight shooting schedule for the film. Although Cellier later admitted that he didn't want to deal with filming outdoors and at night, suggesting that this was kind of why he gave Spence so many scenes to shoot. Although some other sources have indicated that Cellier was simply uncomfortable with shooting the gory kill scenes in the film. You know, the horror movie content in the horror movie that he's directing. <laughs> right. So he passed those scenes on to Spence. Uh, worth mentioning, too, is uh, Henning Schellerup, the DP on the film. Uh, cast seemed to like him a lot. Uh, Robert Wilson talks about him very highly, that he was one of the guys that also helped him through, besides Lillian, uh, that, that he was there to show him like this is what i do this is the framing of the shot this is where you need to be and this is how your timing works and all this stuff and so he like got this really great education because i mean robert wilson is not some super famous actor but the guy continues to work to this day so no yeah he's got credits all the way up to this year you know he kind of fell into acting i guess And, and mostly like little roles on tv shows here and there but yeah he This turned into a career for him that he wasn't expecting, I guess. So while the film was in post-production, TriStar changed the title from Sleigh Ride to Silent Night, Deadly Night because they were informed that there was another movie in development with the title Sleigh Ride, although that movie never ended up getting made, that I can tell. Uh, Although I would also argue that Silent Night, Deadly Night is a much better title anyway. That's a great title for a horror movie. It really is, yeah. And to their credit, prior to the film's release, TriStar really seemed to be behind the film. You know, it had a pretty incredible marketing campaign, uh, one that proved to maybe be a little too 
effective because that's kind of what spurred what's going to happen here in a bit. Uh, but first, you know, to promote the film, they hired a graphic designer named Bert Klieger to create the film's infamous poster. This poster, if you've never seen it, I mean, go- look it up, Google it. Uh, it. It shows this beautiful, like, painted poster, you know, like 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 how people used to make movie posters in the 70s and 80s. But it shows Santa climbing down a chimney. Now, you can't really see Santa. You just kind of see his, like, arm still sticking out of the chimney, and the rest of him's already down in the chimney. And his arm, you know, his hand is holding a double-headed axe. So he's clearly up to no good. And then it's got the tagline on the poster that says, uh, he knows when you've been naughty. Uh, it's it's a great poster. It really is. Like I when I was a little kid creeping into the video store horror section. I mean, that is definitely one I've always remembered. In fact, when I got the Blu-rays for this, I had first turned around. The uh, cover has new art. Yeah, of, but it's reversible. But it's reversible, and yeah. it has that picture. And I love that picture because I just remember that. Yeah, fondly. So effective and. I don't know. I just, one of the great cover arts of all time. I don't know a better yeah. way to say that. It really is. And and that that tagline, it had a couple different taglines. One of the other ones that they used was, you've made it through Halloween, now try to survive Christmas. So they were definitely trying to like tie this into the success of John Carpenter's movie. And it was this poster, along with the film's trailers and TV spots, that led to Silent Night, Deadly Night becoming one of the most surprisingly controversial films of the 1980s. Uh, TriStar, however, they didn't predict or even expect any kind of controversy because of the Christmas stuff, you know. After all, this was not the first movie to depict a killer dressed as Santa Claus. Four years earlier, a movie called Christmas Evil depicted that very thing, and nobody seemed to care. And even earlier than that, the 1972 horror anthology Tales from the Crypt featured this is the the movie not the not the tv show but the movie featured a killer santa claus in its very first segment which was called and all through the house and they they refilmed that for the tv series later on i think it was in episode two of the tv series where larry drake plays the killer santa claus so this had been done before but they were however a little bit concerned with how the film portrayed the catholic church that's what they thought was going to be so controversial about it so when it came time to release the film they released it in a limited capacity in the most in mostly protestant midwestern states they they were kind of very strategic about where they were releasing it when and then they would expand the release to the more catholic northeastern states and then after that the plan was to roll it out nationwide little by little that's how releases like this tended to go uh, back at this time things didn't necessarily open wide they it was a rolling release schedule so well, they yeah were- you want to be careful with the catholic church because i mean you know my wife's catholic and i you know with respect they've got an impeccable record they have no blemishes so you don't want to fall <laughs> right of course trouble. yeah <laughs> Uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night was released on November 9th, 1984, the same day, by the way, as Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street. These two movies opened on the very same day. That is amazing. Isn't that cool? Uh, But by the time it came out, the film had already proved to be highly controversial, although the folks who were protesting it, I'm sure you won't be surprised to know, had not actually watched the movie. But with an ad campaign that highly emphasized the killer being dressed as Santa and reports that the movie's TV spots were being aired between 
between episodes of family-friendly shows like Little House on the Prairie and, and during uh, Saturday afternoon football games. This led to protests around the country with the Parent-Teacher Association fighting to get the film removed from theaters. That's the kind of thing, though, that I can picture is if I was a little kid that was very aware around this time, and I was not because I'm not quite that old, that I would have remembered any of this. Yeah. I could see myself during a football game like my grandpa's watching football and I catch this commercial and then just having nightmares about it. Yeah, I mean, I on one hand, I understand the concern. Like they they should not have aired these trailers during certain times, probably. Uh, not only that because it's about Santa Claus, but because it's a it's a slasher movie anyway. I mean, normally you want to cater that to your audience, which is probably not the Little House on the Prairie audience, right? <laughs> <I would> think. <laughs> Michael Landon and murderous Santa, go right? Hand in hand. <laughs> So in Milwaukee, which is one of the cities where the film opened that first weekend, radio and TV stations were flooded with protests, many of which were from a group calling themselves Citizens Against Movie Madness, which was a cam, I guess. I guess they were. Yeah, to- <laughs> I was just noticing that. I was like, that's, that's pretty clever. I guess yeah. maybe. And it was led by two local mothers from, from the Milwaukee area there, and they protested Milwaukee's Grand Theater and similar protests happened at the uh, Interboro Quad Theater in the Bronx and the RKO Kingsway Theater in Coney Island. So pe- when I say people were protesting, like people were literally out with picket signs picketing the movie theaters, which Fantastic. is insane. Yeah. Protesters, like some of the signs had messages on them. Like one one uh, that is mentioned a couple times is deck the halls with holly, not bodies, which I have to admit is a pretty great protest slogan. Like that's good. <laughs> I am only disappointed in it for the fact that in none of the sequels is does anybody have anything on any of the subtitles as like deck the ha- halls with bodies. Or right, they really like should that. have. You know, <laughs> they should have ran with it. The thing is, it wasn't necessarily the film's violent content that caused this protest. Slasher movies were a dime a dozen in 1984. It was simply that the violence was juxtaposed with Christmas imagery, specifically Santa Claus imagery, you know. Uh, One protester said, and I quote, the movie violates everything I believe in. I guess he believes in Santa Claus. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's taking the spirit out of Christmas. Uh, While another claimed that the trailer, quote, scared the hell out of my kids. This commercial has ruined Christmas for my children. (laughs) Well, that's what I'm saying. See, now I can see that one. I I get I get them being freaked out by that because I, I I think that, it, you know, I could be making it up completely, but I, I feel like I remember being in the video store. And that was the creepy part about the thing is picturing Santa coming after you because you're like, oh, I picked my nose last week. I'm screwed. You know, he sees you when you're sleeping. He can get down chimneys like he's got these magical powers. So like him, if he decides to to flip and go crazy. That's that's trouble for everyone, which we will see uh, in a, a later film starring Bill Goldberg, I believe. So. <laughs> right. I hope that we do see that. that we can talk <laughs> about that. Yeah, and and I don't know. It's weird that the way you just said that it reminded me of the Weird Al song, and it's so the night Santa went crazy. Yeah, yeah. That now it's like a that that was like a funny song. Yeah, it is a funny song. Still is a funny song. Uh, So in response to these protests, though, there were some TV stations that moved the commercials to late night slots. So they stopped showing them in the middle of the afternoon when kids could see them, while other TV stations decided to remove them altogether. And some theaters even yielded to protesters and began pulling the film after it had only been out for like a week. And the critical response did not help, uh, with a lot of film critics hopping on their soapboxes to speak out against the film. Critics, uh, some Hollywood, you know, movie 
stars and stuff also spoke out against it. Uh, Leonard Malton called it a worthless splatter film and asked, uh, again, a direct quote, what's next? The Easter Bunny as a child molester? Which That's a big what, leap, Liddy. Yeah, what the fuck, Liddy? <laughs> <laughs> Where did that come from? <laughs> I think that somewhere deep in your psyche, there's some fucked up stuff going on, Leonard. Right. <laughs> the reviewer for the Los Angeles Times wrote, it's safe to predict that Silent Night, Deadly Night will start making worst movie of all times lists almost immediately. And then most infamously, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, and this is at the height of their popularity, probably, you know, they tore into not only the film itself, but everyone involved in making it. Uh, I'm actually going to play a little clip from that review. The distributor of this film, TriStar Pictures, which is co-owned by Columbia Pictures, CBS, and Home Box Office, pulled the commercial out of release after a week of protest by parents led by a Milwaukee group. Of course, commercials like that usually die out after a week anyway, <laughs> so thanks a lot, fellas. But there's no question in my mind that the showing of Santa with an axe on free TV and commercials is sick and sleazy and mean-spirited. So let's repeat the names of the people who did it. <laughs> TriStar Pictures, co-owned by Columbia Pictures, CBS, and Home Box Office. Shame on you. So let me repeat the names of the writer and director and producers of this film. Michael Hickey wrote the film. Charles E. Sellier Jr. directed it. And Ira Richard Barmack produced it. You people have nothing to be proud of, even if you made a few bucks off of all the negative publicity. Your profits truly are blood money. And Silent Night, Deadly Night now has the distinction of joining I Spit on Your Grave as one of the two most contemptible films I have seen. And I don't mean to think it's campy. It really is quite awful. I'm glad you mentioned those people's names because quite frequently they think, gee, we'll make this exploitation film, we'll be able to buy our uh, Mercedes and live in Bel Air, and nobody right. will ever know what we did. But I would like to hear them explain to their children and their grandchildren uh -huh. that it's only a movie. Yeah. I think that would be a real interesting explanation. So, in that clip that we just played, when Gene Siskel called it sick, sleazy, and mean-spirited, uh, that wasn't an inaccurate description of the movie, I don't think. I mean, it is all of those things. But when I, as a horror movie fan at least, when I hear that description, guess what? That, that makes me want to see the movie even more. You know, yes, sir. you call a movie sick, sleazy and mean spirited. I am. I'm there. That is that That's, is a movie for me. <laughs> that is what horror fans are signing up for. Right. Exactly. And and that's what happened for a lot of people. You know, as we've discussed numerous times, more times than we could count, probably on this podcast over the years, when someone tries to censor a movie or any work of art, for that matter, or someone tries to tell you not to see it, they're like, don't see this movie. It's sick. It's disgusting. You don't see it even more people are going to want to see it, right? Silent Night, Deadly Night opened in less than 400 theaters its opening weekend and still managed to bring in a respectable $1.4 million. In fact, on its opening weekend, Silent Night, Deadly Night made more money than A Nightmare on Elm Street did. Boom! <laughs> Suck it. Who saw that coming? <laughs> but Nobody. what... Yeah, but one thing you may have noticed during that clip from the show is that Siskel, he not only named the film's producers and director, but he na name-dropped TriStar Pictures and its parent companies as well. And that was what scared the studio. It wasn't necessarily the controversy. It said they were dragging their name through the mud. And again, TriStar is a new studio. 
they they don't want this kind of publicity, right? They don't they they don't want to be seen as the they don't want to be forever remembered as the company who unleashed Killer Santa Claus upon the children at Christmas of 1984. So, <laughs> after only two weeks in theaters, the movie was pulled. They pulled they pulled the movie from theaters nationwide or everywhere that it had opened already uh, because of the that rolling release schedule that TriStar had mapped out. Uh, by by the time they pulled it from theaters, it had not even reached the West Coast yet. So it hadn't got even to Hollywood. People in L.A., the the center of movie making in the world, had not even had a chance to see the movie yet because it had not opened there yet. And it would not reach the West Coast yet until May of 1985 after producer Ira Barmack managed to buy back domestic distribution rights for the film. He bought them back from TriStar and then released the film through a new distributor uh, the following May. Couldn't even get to the West Coast, the most godless place on earth. And you could, <laughs> come on, that's so where when, it would have made bank. <laughs> that, that's it. So when when Silent Night Deadly Night was released on home video, uh, courtesy of Live Entertainment, uh, who we will talk a lot about here in a minute. Uh, it, this was in 1986. By the time that Live Entertainment got the hold of it, they released it on video uh, just before the holidays in 1986. And by that time. It finally found its audience because you see, but by this time the film had acquired a sort of forbidden fruit quality. You know, everyone had talked, everyone knew about the controversy. It had been written about in movie like horror magazines like Fangoria, you know, so horror movie fans were aware of it. It had made the news. I mean, it, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert talked about it. All that did was give it more publicity. It had been on, you know, new like i don't know like 2020 and news you know, entertainment tonight things like that or whatever the equivalent was at the time like it had made national news this controversy and people were not able to see it so once it finally came out on vhs people wanted to see it you know because when, when a movie becomes it, it, when it when it does acquire that forbidden fruit quality that just fans the flames uh, especially among horror movie fans like it becomes like this must see kind of thing like i've got to see what all the fuss is about, you know? Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. I don't, I don't know. And especially if you're stubborn like me, because yeah. I just, I want to see what you told me I can't see. Tell yeah. me that I can't see something. Tell me that this is too awful to look at, because, th man, that's the, this the car crash thing. And, and you might be right. Like, I've, I've never seen the movie, a Serbian film. Um, everyone tells me it's like one of the most disgusting, despicable horror movies you'll ever see. Uh, I've never watched it, but I want to, even though I might regret it afterwards. You know, I might right. end, that movie might end and I'll be like, well, everyone was right. And that was the, the most fucked up thing. And I'm, I am incredibly upset now, but I need to know for myself. I can't go by your word on how fucked up it is. I need to know. I need to see it. Right. Uh, it's the same, same especially kind of this far into our lives, Justin, because you, yeah. you got to be thinking, I've seen some pretty fucked up stuff. Right. Come yeah. On. Yeah. What have you, what could you possibly show me at this point? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so dead inside. Please like, tell you me telling me not to watch something is a dare. You are right. double dog daring me is what you're doing. And I can't, right. I can't turn down a double dog dare. You know, that's it. Now <laughs> I'm going to the theater. And I'm buying out a whole road of myself because I want to see this shit. I am sitting front and center for Silent Night, Deadly Night. Give me that dirty Santa. <laughs> so uh, that's what happened, though. I mean, it, not in a theater, but on video, and it became a big hit. So given the film's success on home video, Live Entertainment, who now owned the rights to the film, 
they were naturally invested in continuing the franchise and started talking sequels. So they approached Charles Sellier about helming another installment, but he declined. He turned him down. I mean, he didn't, I don't think he really wanted to do the first one. He did it as a favor, you know, but he definitely didn't want to attach himself to a film, to another film that might generate the same kind of controversy that the first one had. But that was not going to stop the franchise's new rights owners from cashing in on the film's notoriety. Because come hell or high water, live entertainment, they were going to get their Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2. The nightmare began with Silent Night, Deadly Night. Need a ride, Santa Claus? Oh, no, not exactly. But it isn't over yet. Fact, the ultimate nightmare is about to begin all over again. Silent Night, Deadly Night, Part 2. Hey, you little bastard! All Ricky ever wanted was a little kindness. Very, very naughty. And all he ever got was pain. revenge and this time garbage day he's going to get boy did they do you know uh by the way i didn't get to say this to the first guy i didn't know where to say it uh but do you know that did you notice there was only 12 kills in the first silent night deadly night Um, i mean that's more than halloween well, I'm only saying it because I did not know they intended to do this. But besides for uh, the 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 death of the antagonist, there there are 12 kills for the 12 days of Christmas. <laughs> was that, wait, was that on purpose? Yeah, it was on purpose. Was it really? <laughs> yeah, and I just that's, thought that was wild. I, they said that in the commentary. Is like, that counting? Shit. Is that counting the the guy at the liquor store at the beginning and mom and dad? I have, or to is it the number of people that Billy kills? Well, I, I didn't. It's probably all of them because Billy doesn't kill that many people. Yeah, I, I, I mean, he said at towards the end of the movie. I remember uh, uh, them talking about it, and it, he said that there were twelve kills. He said besides Billy getting shot, right? There are twelve kills for the twelve days of Christmas. And I was oh. like, man, I would have never noticed that. I just took him at his word. I didn't go back and count them. Yeah, but next time I will. So when Sellier refused to return for the sequel, the the producers, they had to start searching for someone else to help steer this new project. And the job went to two guys who had never directed a film before. Uh, Their names were Lee Harry and Joseph H. Earl, who were two young editors who worked in a post-production facility in Burbank, California. Now, according to Harry, they likely got the job simply because their boss was friends with the folks at Live Entertainment. He, like, recommended him for the job. So... You might be asking yourself, why would the producers hire a couple of editors who had never directed anything to direct their horror film? Well, well that's easy. You, you tend to get paranoid when everyone around you gets dead. <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't know. Something said. I don't know. Well, you see, the, the producer's original plan was to simply recut the footage from Silent Night, Deadly Night. They told Harry and Earl to use their editing skills to make it look like a completely different movie. That's why they hired editors. So they 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 were going to just take the footage from the first movie, re-edit it, repackage it as a sequel. And yeah, the, the producers, 
the producers originally had no intention of filming any new footage at all for the sequel. They were going to make it like a a retelling, like a literal. They, they said they would have like narration or something. Was like what they were told originally. Just like like it was like a documentary or some shit. <laughs> such a <laughs> such a dumb fucking idea. <laughs> right. Like everything about this, it's like who is this? I guess. All I can guess is that if they're repackaging it specifically for the home video market, right? They're just banking on somebody who's seen the first Silent Night, Deadly Night. They see another tape next to it that says part two, and they're going to rent it regardless. And by time that they realize that they've been duped, it doesn't matter, right? Because they It's too already... late back then, especially. Right. You can't, exactly. Like, cancel or anything or back out of it. You, you, yeah. went, you went to you the th- store and you rented it. You spent your dollar at Family Video and you rented this movie. And what, Family Video is not going to give you your money back because they didn't make the movie, right? So what do they What do they care? You know, that, that's all I can guess is that they were just sort of trying to con people into renting the same movie twice. Is <laughs> really what it sounds like to me. Ugh, so weird. Uh, very weird. Very weird. So, you know, for a couple of seasoned editors, taking some existing footage and essentially remixing it would probably be pretty easy to pull off. But Harry and Earl, they didn't really see the point in doing this. So they said, they said well, maybe we're just jerking off here then. Are you just quoting Ricky? <laughs> I am quoting Ricky. <laughs> <laughs> you have to say it with a little more derangement in your voice, though, I think. You don't well, sound- maybe we're just jerking off then. Yeah, that's better. <laughs> So uh, Harry and Earl tried to convince the producers to go in another direction. They they pitched the idea of interweaving new footage in with clips from the original film. That way they could continue the story from the first film while padding out the running time with footage that they already had. Now, admittedly, and, and Harry has mentioned this in interviews as well, so he's, he's very aware of it. Uh, it does not make a whole lot of sense to have Ricky recall the events, Ricky being Billy's brother from the first film. Uh, it doesn't have make a lot of sense for Ricky to recall the events from the first film since he was a he was a baby at the time of his parents' murder. So he didn't really see anything. He definitely wouldn't have remembered it. Not to mention that some of his recollections involve scenes that he didn't witness at all. Like he's not even he wasn't even there, you know. Uh, and I mean, hell, at one point in part two, he's in a movie theater watching scenes from part one. <laughs> no and they said they said that baby thing didn't even cross their mind like they that babies they, don't babies aren't going to remember things that happen to them when they're six months old yeah in the commentary <laughs> they were like yeah we were just doing it that didn't even cross our mind at all does <laughs> <laughs> that not occur to you <laughs> i love that they just they went from like just remixing the original to like now they're like I don't, I don't think like superimposing is, I don't know if that's the right word, but they're just like fitting the baby into scenes. Yeah. It's not even the same baby. I don't think Yeah, there was, was there a baby in the first one? Yeah. It's in, he's in the backseat of the car. Uh, you, you see him crying when the parents get murdered because then like when Billy gets older in the first one, his brother is at the, at the orphanage with him because the movie ends with the, with them looking at 
Ricky, who's now like 10 or 11 years old or whatever, saying like punish or naughty. I think he says punish. Oh, that's movie. right. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. I totally forgot about that. I was like, they just fit him in and like all these. But no, he, there is a, I mean, there is a younger brother in the first movie. Yes. Yeah. So they, so they, they were playing off of that, but it's like, yeah, he's a baby. He wouldn't, he's not going to remember any of this at all uh I'm sorry we can talk about part two again you're gonna like this next part it sounds like a squirrel getting his nuts squeezed <laughs> that that scene in the movie theater by the way by the oh and that that's lee harry in the back not the guy who's like being an asshole uh but the guy you know the guy who's talking through the whole movie uh, the one the that guy, gets popcorn thrown in his face yeah the, yeah the guy next to him with the mustaches is uh is the director of, of this movie lee harry but that's funny it's like he's never seen a movie theater that's weird yeah right it does not look like, <laughs> like any movie theater i've ever seen uh but the thing of, i mean they they reused footage from the first movie because they had the rights to it and they didn't have to pay for for more footage so they're like well like Billy and Ricky aren't in this scene. It's just the it's just the guy robbing the liquor store or whatever and murdering somebody. So it could be from anything. But if you've seen the first movie, you know it's from that, right? Not only that though, but one thing that I thought I thought about this time is that he's you know Ricky's on a date with this girl who they've apparently been dating for a little while now, right? So I guess Ricky has never brought up to his girlfriend that he's got some major like trauma that involves someone dressed as Santa Claus and murdering his parents. Like that's never come up in conversation for them because otherwise I don't think she would have taken him to this particular movie. That's about a guy dressed as Santa Claus murdering people either that, or she's a terrible girlfriend. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, I could see, I could see him not telling her that. Yeah. I mean, that just feels, you know, like it, Halloween H2O, Jamie Lee doesn't tell anybody. Michael Myers had stalked her. Yeah, I guess that's true. A couple of movies. <laughs> so. Well, none of this seemed to bother the producers at all. I mean, they just wanted a cheap slasher sequel that they could bang out and make a few bucks on. So, you know, Harry and Earl, they spent a few days working on a screenplay, literally a few days. I knocked it out over the course of, a, I think, less than a week. Uh, and filming for Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2 began in December of 1986. This is just a couple of months after it's come out on, on the, after the first one's come out on video at this point, right? So the sequel was shot over a period of about 10 days. So very, very quick shoot, very low budget, quick shoot, minuscule budget of only $250,000, a quarter of a million dollars. And every penny of it shows on screen, if you ask me. <laughs> This this new footage makes up roughly 45 minutes of the film's runtime. Like 50% of the film is new footage. And the other 50% is just repurposed footage from the first movie. So basically, if, you, if you've seen the movie, and if you're listening to this, uh, I, I sincerely hope that you've been fortunate enough to experience Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2. But uh, then you know that it feels very much like a film that was rushed into production with very little time to film on a very small budget and with a script that was written in a few days. I mean, basically, the, the premise of it is that you've got Ricky, the younger brother from the first film, who's gone on his own killing rampage, and he is now being interviewed by a psychiatrist, psychologist, and telling his brother's story, which the movie then flashbacks to just show 
like 40 minutes from the first movie. <laughs> and we're, we're talking about him remembering shit as a baby, but I mean, he's also remembering parts that he was not there for. He was not there for. Yeah. So he could not possibly remember. <laughs> like he, he was, cause for most of the first movie, he's in the orphanage while his brother's off doing other things, you know, uh, at least during the, the part where his brother's killing people, he's still back at the orphanage until the very last scene of the movie. So he right. he doesn't see any of this. Like he doesn't see the toy store. He doesn't see any of that stuff. But this movie pretends that he is some sort of clairvoyant <laughs> that he can remember all of this. He just um, really he spent a lot of time on Google looking up the history. They didn't of, have Google uh, in 1984. <laughs> now the final product is, if I may be frank, a real piece of shit. Garbage <laughs> <is>. day. <laughs> It is, it is compulsively watchable because of one thing. And you just hit the nail on the head with that quote, Gary, that the thing that makes this movie watchable, in my opinion, is the performance of lead actor, Eric Freeman, who play who plays Ricky. It is this weird over the top performance. And at no point during the runtime, the 90 minute runtime of this movie, at no point does Eric Freeman ever do a single thing that resembles <laughs> real human behavior. <laughs> not once it is it is so one of the most unhinged bizarre performances you will ever see in a movie it's, it's wild yeah and it's like you have to see it you do it you you have unreal. to witness it and, uh, and it may not come as a shock to our listeners that this was eric freeman's first major acting gig and he got the job simply because the director thought that he looked the part you don't have one of these Santa boys here with acting experience. That's not what you do. No, that's uh, not the point. You just yeah. got to find a guy with muscles. That's all. He's got to look like a Nazi poster boy. Yeah. And, <laughs> he's got to <laughs> fucking want to murder everybody on Christmas. And apparently he was cocky at the audition and everything too. Like he was very like outspoken and stuff. And they had another guy in mind that had almost gotten the part uh they said he was very method and dark and like kind of had like an eerie delivery and it, i think it was this guy uh david heavener uh they mentioned him in the uh in the um in the commentary and he i wasn't really uh, familiar with that guy um he's in movies like if you go look him up on imdb like is known for is like all 80s movies like angel blade prime target outlaw force oh like, like he's straight to video action movies yeah yeah exactly <laughs> so like this is this is that guy i wasn't super familiar with him but i could see it but they they mentioned that like uh one of the producers or no it was like one of the uh it was lawrence applebaum who was credited with the story in this uh, that he he was not a fan of him and he creeped him out and that he hmm. thought that he liked the look of freeman instead yeah so they ended up rolling that way yeah freeman also apparently like he was obsessed with like his looks like his muscles and stuff and he would bring weights to set and be like pumping iron in between takes and <laughs> stuff like I that. i can believe that <laughs> uh and according to freeman he received very little direction on set aside from joseph earl standing on the sidelines just yelling more crazier like do it bigger like <laughs> like freeman kind of lays the blame of some of his performance on 
the direction that he he received. Although he he does admit that, hey, it's still on me. I'm still the one who did it. But they kept telling him to go. They wanted him like very big and over the top and stuff, uh, you know. But uh, Joseph Earl, of course, is not credited as the film's director. It's uh, he's credited as a co-writer. But Lee Harry uh, was the official director. He's he's who's credited as the director on the film. But if Freeman's to be believed, Lee Harry had very little interaction with his actors. I mean, and Lee Harry in in later interviews admits that he was kind of in over his head. Like he had no idea how to how to run a movie set. You know, he every there's people asking you to make decisions all the time, left and right, left and right. And he's like, uh, it's just like became overwhelming and stuff for him. So uh, he admits that, but it's also likely because, I mean, they're shooting, they have 10 days to shoot, you know, uh, it's a very quick schedule. So they don't have really time to go over, you know, what you, what, what's my character's motivation, you know, <laughs> he says like in, in some things that, yeah, like you said, Earl was more about being like over the top and crazy and, uh, Freeman had pictured it in his head, according to him, like more cold and calculating, like that kind of thing. And uh, and then the only thing apparently like Lee Harry ever said, and one thing I was reading was that like he pictured him like Freddy Krueger. So he had like wisecracks and stuff like that. <laughs> so I don't I mean, know. they try to do that a little bit, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Is that is that what Garbage Day was an attempt? <laughs> that was a Freddy Krueger joke. Brother, I don't know. A terribly, is, terribly conceived Freddy Krueger. Like, I can't, I wish, I wish I could go inside his brain just for that part. Yeah. Like, what, what were you thinking? Well, Ed Freeman even says that he tried to say it a little more subtly, and they told him to get weirder and bigger with the delivery of that line. And it becomes this bizarre sing-song delivery that, of course, I mean, that's that's the scene that this movie is mostly known for. Like, if you haven't seen... Silent Night, Deadly Night 2, you've probably still seen Garbage Day. It's gone viral, you know, multiple times. And it's like, a, it's an infamous bad movie scene. There's no way that like, I mean, clearly they did not anticipate this, uh, but it's just weird. Like I watched it for our little movie night we do with this other couple. Like we're all sync up and watch the same movie and, and we send each other messages throughout, like chat it up. And we watched this one because nobody had ever seen it before. And I was like, oh, well, this is perfect. This is the, a great one to show everybody. And uh, that's because they, don't, they I mean, don't have to have seen the first one because you get. And you don't have. And I told him <laughs> that. I was like, you don't even have to see the first one because it's here. Yeah. And uh, and then it's just so crazy to me, like watching that movie and just seeing how low budget and just shitty it is. Yeah. And uh, and I mean that with love that. <laughs> Uh, you go on your phone to like send some gifts from Giphy or something, and uh, and Garbage Day is all over that thing. Yeah, like yeah. you know, there are plenty. You could have no trouble finding some uh, clips from this movie, especially Garbage Day. Yeah, not at all. Well, Silent Night, Deadly Night Part Two enjoyed a very brief theatrical run, lasting only a couple of weeks and making you know, very little money. <laughs> Maybe because the studio decided they'd release a Christmas movie. Um, in the middle of April. <laughs> I don't know what they're thinking behind that was, but that's when this movie came out in, in, in uh, the theater. So even though it was conceived as a direct-to-video thing, I, th- I guess maybe they thought if they did a little small theatrical run that they could make a little extra bank off of it. But So maybe the you idea talked was... About, you talked about ridding it, imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So the film would soon be released on home video, but 
it would be years before it really gained a cult following. Uh, after it was rediscovered, and like I said, it was memed to death, uh, and then embraced as an unintentionally hilarious black comedy. Now, this franchise, we'll, we'll mention the others in a bit, but this franchise is, is, is pretty unique <laughs> in the realm of Christmas movies, in the realm of horror movies. I mean, there are, I think, there's no shortage of Christmas horror movies out there. I mean, hell, there there is no shortage of killer Santa Claus movies out there. Really, uh, there's quite a few. I mean, I've got a whole letterbox list that's just about just killer Santa Clauses because I was able, I just one day I decided to make that a project for myself to find as many killer Santa Claus movies as I could. There's a lot of them, you know. But while most of them could very easily, very neatly be grouped into the slasher subgenre, uh, I think Silent Night, Deadly Night, the first one at least occupies a pretty unique space you know like it's it it's a weird horror movie while it, it does normally get lumped in with other killer santa slashers like we mentioned briefly christmas evil um to all a good night or the bill goldberg classic santa's sleigh you know it, it kind of gets lumped in with those movies which are more traditional slashery kind of movies silent night deadly night is doing something a little bit different. Like, I mean, yeah, it's, a, it's about a guy who goes on a killer rampage while dressed as Santa Claus. But uh, as we mentioned early on in this episode, because this was actually very intentional, the movie spends like two thirds of its running time giving you Billy's backstory. Whereas most slashers are content to throw in a little exposition uh, among all the murders to explain their killer's motivation. Silent Night, Deadly Night seems to be intent on really exploring the circumstances that led to Billy snapping and becoming a, a, a killer. You know, and that's, it's really weird. And I, I, I'd seen this movie before. It's been a while. I've actually seen part two more than I've seen part one. So watching part one this time after several years, like that really stood out to me. I was like, this is like, they're building a psychological profile of this guy. It's very strange and, and not, it's not a bad thing. It's just not what you normally expect, you know, from this kind of movie. Even with like the way that that cover art was that we were talking about, like, it's just, it's odd. Like, cause it does seem like a straightforward slasher. And so I could yeah. see people like, uh, you know, not the butthurt family values people, uh, but the, uh, but anyone who but, was expecting a straightforward slasher movie, you know, that, yeah, you're not getting that out of this. Mm -mm. I mean, this, this is a movie about a kid who suff suffers like, the worst trauma imaginable. Like he, he sees his parents brutally murdered before his eyes and his mother assaulted and then murdered, you know? So, and then he grows up to understandably suffer from what, what I can only describe as severe PTSD from this, right. from this incident that happened when he was a kid, you know? And there's, a, there are a lot of other factors that contribute to his eventual of skewed morality, I guess you could call it, where he, you know, dressed as Santa, judges people on whether they're naughty or nice. You know, it, it all starts with this. It, and it, it honestly starts with his crazy ass grandpa telling him that Santa punishes naughty children on Christmas Eve. You know, that's kind of where right. it all starts. That was the, the seed that was planted. And then is like minutes later, he sees a dude dressed as Santa murder his entire family or murder his parents, you know, but Great then, of time. course, yeah, 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 exactly. But then he goes, he gets put into an institution. He gets put into an orphanage, you know, where he spends years under the watchful and 
highly judgmental eye of the mother superior there, which only further creates this skewed sense of right and wrong and how each of those extremes is dealt with. Because in this environment, he is regularly punished for not following the rules set forth by the church, by the Catholic church and by mother superior. I mean, there's one point, a seminal moment in young Billy's life where he, he looks through a peep, a, a keyhole and sees a couple having sex. Right. And mother superior catches him and punishes the couple by whipping them with her belt and later explains to Billy before giving him a beating. She says, punishment is absolute punishment is necessary. Punishment is good. And so that's like the lessons that this kid is learning. Who's already had a pretty fucked up upbringing, you know? Uh, I mean, one could all, argue that the mother superior is as responsible for his broken psyche and his murderous tendencies as the guy who killed his family was. If I could compare, this is weird, but I thought about this while I was thinking about this movie. If I could compare Silent Night, Deadly Night to any other horror movie, it's not Halloween and it's not Friday the 13th. It's Bill Lustig's Maniac which is a movie that similarly fleshes out the history of psychological damage that has led to the killer's rage. Uh, It it certainly adheres more closely to that than your typical, you know, Michael Myers type slasher villain. uh, One who kills out of, I guess, I don't know. I'm talking, when I say Michael Myers type, I'm talking about Michael Myers, who doesn't have a long lost sister in the first Halloween, who just kills out, who just kills because he's pure evil and doesn't have any real motivation other than that, like this is a killer who like the filmmakers deliberately gave him like real psychological motivation, which you very rarely see done in a horror movie. And when you do see it done, it's, you know, we joked about it before, but it's in, it's done clumsily, like in Rob Zombie's Halloween, you know, it's not done as, as well, in my opinion, as it's done in this movie. Yeah, this, this movie is, I, I did the exact same thing as you. Like I, I picked the second one first. Like when I was like I was talking about that movie night thing, I picked the second one just because I was like, "Oh, right, well, you'll get you'll get everything you need in this one," and go in and and you do to a point. But it's, you get the killing stuff, but you don't get the background, the backstory stuff that's so important yeah, to the first movie. Exactly, it is interesting. Like the the vibe that you get in the first one, and uh, and and watching it this time, I was like, okay, the first one is like. A pretty decent movie. Like yeah, it's you know it's it's it holds up well on its own. It does, I think. I think it's I think it's a good movie. Uh, I think it's the best movie in the franchise. Uh, not, th- I mean, that's a it's a weird roller coaster of a franchise. It's a vastly better film than Part Two. Now, Part Two is entertaining in its own ways. So don't get me wrong, but as far as like actual quality of filmmaking on on display, I think the first one's pretty good. Uh, I think it's a good movie. I think it's uh it's a good horror movie. It's an incredibly unique horror movie uh, in all the, for all the reasons that I just laid out, the way that it kind of gives Billy a reason for what happens. Now, it doesn't justify it. It never makes him out to be like the good guy. It just gives you, it just explains why he is the way he is and why he snaps. Now, once he snaps, it, he kind of does go on like a, I'm just killing random people. Like when he comes up upon Linnea Quigley's house and I guess just kills them because they were home. I don't really know why he. Even they're, they're having sex. Probably. Yeah, he doesn't see. He, he doesn't see that from outside the house. He just yeah, it is weird though because then he gives the little girl the box cutter because she's been yeah. good. She's she's innocent. That's true. That is true. I mean, he definitely saw them as naughty. I mean, she does answer the door 
completely topless, <laughs> which is a, it's a weird, weird move on her part. Naughty. But, yeah. So ironically, though, you know, we, we talked about all these parents who were concerned about Silent Night, Deadly Night having a, a negative impact on how their kids viewed Christmas and Santa Claus. But had they seen the movie, they would actually see that the movie itself is kind of concerned with that exact same thing. You know, it shows a man whose view of the holiday has been perverted. Uh, and then he goes on to kind of inflict that same fear, the fear of Santa Claus and the, this weird, naughty, nice Christmas thing onto other people. I mean, everyone who comes in contact with Billy in that movie, uh, at least all the ones who survive, will forever view the holiday differently. Like their view of Santa Claus is skewed, especially those kids at the orphanage at the end who see not only an insane person dressed as Santa you know, burst into their house and uh, try to kill Mother Superior, but they see Santa Claus get gunned down not once but twice <laughs> because remember they killed the wrong guy the first time. So these kids are <laughs> fucked up forever. <laughs> like Chris, none of those kids will ever celebrate Christmas <laughs> in their entire lives. This uh I'm not sure this argument's gonna work on the uh the picketers, Justin. I don't think anybody's walking out of this movie thinking, like, wow, you know, I bet everybody that survived Billy in this movie. They've really come to appreciate the true spirit of the holiday. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and then, of course, at the end, you've got Billy's brother. You see Billy's brother, Ricky. He, I think he even picks up like a knife or something, doesn't he, at the end? Or a gun or something at the end? And he that says, like, right, yeah. after his brother has been killed in front of him, dressed as Santa Claus. And he picks up the weapon and mutters, like, punish. Or I think he says punish, not naughty. And that sort of is the movie. Yeah, it's the movie setting up a sequel, but it's also like this is a, it's it, it's kind of showing that this trauma is is cyclical, and that just because Billy's gone doesn't mean that like there are other fucked up people you know in the world and things things just keep bad things just keep happening to these guys. But of course, yeah. the the sequel that came from it. I would say did not depict these same nuanced themes. I think that I don't think I'm going out on a limb and saying that the the sequel had different motivation. <laughs> so it didn't really it didn't really pick up those nuances and run with it, you know. Uh because Ricky in the sequel, he just kills every anyone indiscriminately. Very little Christmas related motivation for Ricky. And because he doesn't even put on like the Santa costume until what, the last 10 minutes of the movie, maybe? Yeah, that's that is weird. Yeah, I'm, that's that's an issue these movies are going to have going forward. Oh yeah, uh, well yeah, yeah. I mean, I can I can enjoy part one because it is kind of a an interesting twist on a slasher movie, but I enjoy part two because of that kind of high camp, so bad it's good quality. Most of which comes from Eric Freeman's just f unhinged performance. I mean, it's deranged, you know, uh, but. It's a, it's a, it's almost whiplash the experience you have watching these two movies back to back. It, it definitely is like a totally different. I don't know. And it's so weird because I have this issue with like the, uh, you know, the, people call it horrible and it is a bad movie, but it's also a really fun movie. So but it's, it's fun because of its, its incompetence, honestly. Like, yeah. which is fine. I mean, if you enjoy it, you enjoy it. And I enjoy it. It's I have a good time watching it because mostly because I'm watching it going like, well, how did, why 
who's making the decisions here? Like, why did anyone decide that what Eric Freeman is doing on camera is what they should put in the final movie? Like, have these people ever watched a movie? Have they ever interacted with other, like, people? <laughs> have they ever? <laughs> because this guy doesn't act like a, a real person, but it's fun, you know? I mean, there's... Yeah. The garbage day scene is obviously the the biggest most well-known scene from the movie, but that's kind of the beginning of the rampage. Well, really, I guess that movie theater scene we mentioned earlier is the beginning of the rampage. It's that's, that's what sets Ricky off on his final rampage is a guy talking during a movie in the movie theater. I could get behind that. <laughs> uh, the, yeah, I mean, I think garbage day is so popular just because yes, it is a very just absolutely unhinged delivery of that line, but it's also like the most succeed, uh, thing you could reference well sure movie. plus it's it's part of this like sequence of events where that scene starts with them running into ricky's girlfriend's ex and he kills him with a car by strapping a car battery to his tongue or something right or no or was it is it to yeah. his tongue yeah and he, the guy's head like smokes and explodes <laughs> like it's yeah it starts like that all poppy yeah then there's that the garbage day scene of course uh but then he, my, my favorite part of that whole sequence, though, is when he shoots the car, uh, that car that's driving down the road, and the car veers up on yeah. two wheels, and this absolutely insane, one of the <laughs> most insanely dangerous stunts I've ever seen. Because whoever's playing Ricky in that scene, I don't know if it was Eric Freeman or a stuntman, that, that car, they just stand there. <laughs> and then they, like, casually step out of the way. But that car was inches from killing that person, whoever they were. <laughs> <laughs> like inches from killing them. They just like, like just kind of like move their shoulder out of the way and let this car that's careening towards them fly, fly past them. And it's, it's like, I almost watched a man die on film when I'm watching that scene. And then the car of course explodes for no yeah, reason. It's, gotta... it's, <laughs> it's, it's hilarious, but like, I don't know to me, silent night, deadly night two is like this campy trash masterpiece. I think if you're into like, if you're into Christmas horror movies or alternative Christmas movies, I think both. I honestly think both of these movies are like must see Christmas genre movies. If if that's your thing, if that's the kind of Christmas movie that you'd like to watch, which I do, you know, I like to I like to spend this time of year. I'll, I'll watch some more traditional stuff in the days leading up to Christmas, you know. But the first part of like December, when I'm really like not quite in the Christmas spirit and stuff yet, uh, I really like. You, seeing stuff like this that utilizes that iconography in a really weird, twisted way, and I think these are two of the like essential ones to watch if you're into that kind of stuff. Yeah, they definitely work uh, great together, and uh, they're they're. You're, I feel like you'll have a good time. Uh, the uh, the other thing I wanted to mention too that I think is weird is like Silent Night, Deadly Night Two goes from like the pacing is so odd that it goes from like this recap of the first movie. Then it's like, you finally get to the point that he's going to break out or you, you know, you get to see his rampage that he has when he mm -hmm. finally breaks out that it's like the weird stalking scene of mother superior, like yeah. in her house. And that's just odd. Like it feels like the movie's like ready to end. And then it's like, now he's after her and it's like yeah. a whole different setting. She's the, the final boss. Yeah. <laughs> she's it's the final so... boss that he has to confront. And it's a different actor, of course, playing mother superior this time. And she's under some weird burn prosthetics. Pros 
a mother superior. <laughs> I've got a present for you. <laughs> oh I can't man, even do it right because he has this thing where he is like straining at the end of his mother superior. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to do it. Like, he does so some. He, he makes so many weird decisions. Like when he chokes the girlfriend with the um, the antenna from the car and just goes cross-eyed for some reason. <laughs> like goes completely cross-eyed while he's he's strangling her. I love that. Right before she's about to be murdered, she, says, <laughs> she goes, "Uh oh, whoops," <laughs> or "Uh oh, yeah, yeah." She goes, she uh-oh. says, "Uh oh." <laughs> <laughs> like she's a fucking <laughs> Looney Tunes cartoon. That's your last word. <laughs> like you're a wily coyote that just accidentally ran off a cliff. <laughs> right. <laughs> Believe it or not, we've referenced this franchise a couple times, and we and we when we talk about the franchise of Silent Night Deadly Night, it doesn't actually end here in part two. Uh, two years later, live entertainment, not wanting to waste the potential of the sequel, uh, <laughs> released the next installment. In the series, and and this one was straight to video, no theatrical run at all for the next one, uh, and and the next sequel it wraps up the Ricky storyline. It's a it's a direct sequel to this one, sort of. I mean, technically, <laughs> but this sequel, part three, was followed up by two additional films, part four and part five, neither of which has anything to do with Billy or Ricky, but they tell their own holiday set horror tales. You know, like. They, they basically turn it into an anthology series and just tell standalone stories. But we're not going to talk about those right now, but we are going to talk about those. Uh, we're doing something special with our further viewing bonus episode this week. So if you want to hear a little bit more about the uh, the further sequels in the Silent Night, Deadly Night franchise, be on the lookout for our next further viewing episode. We'll be releasing that sometime here in the next in the next week or so. This is an exciting time to be alive. All five <laughs> movies. I hope you all spent all of your money on getting all five movies of this franchise so you can enjoy them with us. To be fair, the Vestron video release of parts three through five when I bought it was $9 on Amazon. <laughs> so, yeah. So it wasn't a huge investment. Like you said about the uh, budget for part two, it's like you could see every penny. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I have for this one. You got anything else to add, Gary? Any any Christmas wishes to bestow upon our listeners? I, well, uh, I don't know how I go from this to trying to be sincere, but uh, yeah, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, we've gotten some nice comments and uh, we do appreciate you. And I do hope that you have a happy holiday, a Merry Christmas, joyful Kwanzaa, uh happy hanukkah whatever whatever it is you do whatever it is you celebrate uh but yeah this is it this is the first ever cinema shot christmas special maybe we'll do more like this in the future uh i don't know i don't know if, the, if other holidays really warrant their own special other than christmas but maybe if this goes over well we'll try to squeeze in some kind of christmas thing in, in the in future years and i i had fun with it it gave me an excuse to watch all five silent night deadly night movies which i might that was the otherwise. fun part of it <laughs> i would have never i can't imagine another reason why i would have ever just chosen parts three through five especially yeah it's it's like, uh it's quite a ride but we'll we'll talk about that here i i enjoyed the ride personally i think it was i think it was very fun but it is a one of the strangest horror movie franchises to ever exist i would say i don't i don't regret anything i just don't think i would have just sat down to watch it yeah just like just done it yeah yeah i get that so well i guess that's it for this week merry christmas everyone 
Thank you for listening. We will be back. Uh, we're probably going to take a week off, uh, actually, we should say. So if you're used to seeing these episodes drop every couple of weeks, it might be an extra week because we're going to take a little bit of time off, uh, you know, spend time with our families for the holidays. And then we'll be back with, I think we've got two more roulette episodes. Oh, we should choose the next roulette episode, though, shouldn't we? Before okay, we let's we do we it. We should do that. So we should know, we should, we should try to figure out what the next movie we're going to talk about is going to be. So this time it's gift wrapped. <laughs> oh, is it gift wrapped? Are we unwrapping the movie? You could do that. I don't know. Just, yeah. just depends on if you want to find some unwrapping noises. <laughs> unwrapping some. I don't have any wrapping paper nearby to make the noise. All right, let's unwrap this then, shall we? Okay. All right, so we are go- we're well. We're doing another Sam Neill movie. It looks like Gary. <laughs> we are. What a what a weird coincidence that we just did Event Horizon, and now we are doing from 1981 a movie that man, I'm very excited that we're talking about this. And I only recently added this to our for our um, our roulette list because it was hard to find for a while, at least in America. But we are talking about a movie from 1981 and a. a, a it, just showing my cards, an incredible horror movie that I'm going to be very excited to talk about called Possession. Uh, have you seen Possession? No. I have You've never, never seen, seen it? this movie. No. Uh, and first I time watch. I've had a couple of people tell me that it's, it's incredible, but I love I, it. I, it is a, it is a, it is a ride. It is an experience. Uh, don't read anything about it. Watch it blind. Just go in and watch it. And it, I, I'm, I will be very excited to hear your, your reaction to it um i love it it's a good movie from 1981 i will hmm, not try to pronounce the director's name maybe sometime between now and our next episode i will try to figure out how you say his name because i do not know how to say his name i think he's polish maybe uh don't quote me on that but 1981 starring sam neil and isabel and johnny we are going to be talking about possession is a uh a film with a major cult following these days, but maybe not as much as some of the other movies we've talked about. So it, it'll be a fun one to dive into. So if you want to uh, watch along with us, go find it. I think it's streaming maybe on shutter right now. I think it was on shutter. So it might be one that's a little bit easier to find than it used to be. And I guess that's all we got. We'll see you guys, cool. man. That'll, this will come out. Our next episode will be in 2024. So happy new year as well. Oh, look at that. Hope, yeah. hope the world keeps going. Yeah, let's hope. <laughs> well, until then, may the wings of liberty. Well, I'm at. I'm at. This is Gary Horn. Oh yeah, we forgot that part. You're. You're what? This is Gary Horn. I'm Justin at, yeah. Bishop, and the show we're, is at Cinema. Uh, we're. Are, why are we doing pros. so bad at this? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the show is at Cinema underscore Shock. You can also find us at CinemaShock.net. All of our episodes, uh, merch, Discord. All that stuff is on there. You can go buy a belated Christmas gift for somebody because it's not going to get to you by Christmas if you order it now. But if you want to buy somebody a Cinema Shock shirt for Valentine's Day, head to cinemashock.net. Well, until next time, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other.